The next thing I know is I wake up and I just remember like something bad happened to me last night. Somebody hurt me. This is Carrie Lowe's story. Carrie did everything, quote unquote, right. She reported right away. Her legal team says police systematically mishandled her case. Meanwhile, her attackers remain at large. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is Carrie Lowe versus. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Banbury. This is Day 6. University campuses across Canada are becoming flashpoints for protests. We want to show that the youth of the world really stand in solidarity with Palestine. It's a pretty difficult time for us right now. So I've honestly been avoiding campus. I didn't go to class this afternoon. How the Israel-Hamas conflict is playing out on university campuses and driving legal action at McGill. That's coming up on Day 6 today. A bouncer for the Beatles. Who was the greatest assistant to the Beatles? It's Mal. What made Mal Evans indispensable as the Fab Four rose to fame? From funk to the flute. Moments of play and mischief. Andre 3000 floats away with New Blue Sun. And dressing Kiss for their final shows. Hey, Rebecca, I broke my hand. Can you finish building the Kiss costumes? What it takes to get Gene Simmons in his jockstrap. All today on Day 6 the Let's Just Kiss and Say Goodbye edition. It's really important that as students we um, engage in our education in a literal and practical way. We need to realize the morals we are being taught and act upon them. Those are students at McGill and Concordia universities during a walkout in support of the Palestinian people a few weeks ago. Now, some McGill students say their right to express those views is being suppressed. This month, students at McGill voted for their student union to adopt an official pro-Palestinian policy. If the policy is ratified, it would call on the university to condemn Israel's bombings in Gaza and to cut ties with corporations that are, quote, complicit in genocide, settler colonialism, apartheid, or ethnic cleansing against Palestinians. The university opposes the proposed policy and has threatened to revoke the Memorandum of Understanding with the student union over the issue. Jewish human rights organization B'nai B'rith Canada says the policy would put Jewish students' safety at risk and has gone to court on behalf of a student to stop the policy from being ratified. This week, a Quebec court temporarily blocked the student union from moving forward until it can hear arguments from both sides in March. Lily Kaysen is the managing editor of News and Student Life at the Tribune, a student newspaper at McGill. She's been reporting on this story. Lily, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Who proposed the pro-Palestinian policy that the student union put to a referendum vote last week? So this was a policy brought forward by students um, and added to the referendum from student demand. And the students when they voted, decided overwhelmingly that they should adopt this policy. How was the vote divided? Exactly. So the policy passed the referendum with 78.7% of non-abstaining voters casting a yes vote. Um, And this is also notable because the voter turnout was much higher than past elections. Um, 31.5% of students cast a ballot. Um, And for reference, last semester, it was only 16.7%. And we know the university administration itself opposed the policy. Who among the students opposed it? No organization, um, student organization, has been 
strongly campaigning against the policy. That being said, I there's definitely been talk on campus um, of students opposing the policy. I would say, though, that the majority of conversations that we've been hearing at least have been for the policy, um, and that kind of was borne out with the vote, um, with almost 80% of students voting for it. Why did the administration come out so strongly against it? The administration came out against this policy because it believes that it sharpens divisions at a time when students are already distressed. It says that this policy is in violation of the Constitution of the Students' Union, um, which states that, quote, the society shall endeavor to facilitate communications and interaction between all students from all McGill communities. As such, it has threatened the memorandum of agreement between the Students' Union and McGill. So um, this is a document that outlines the relationship between these two institutions, including how fees are collected, um, the student union's use of um, the university center, which is on McGill's campus, and then also, very importantly, the student union's use of the McGill name itself. So those, those are, are fairly severe consequences. What was the reaction of the student union when the university threatened those actions? The student union... Um, or the president of the student union, I shall say, um, has told the Tribune that next steps are for um, their board to review the policy and make a decision and speak to their lawyers and such. So the university thought that this could be a disruptive principle for the student body to adopt. What was the atmosphere like on campus in the lead up to the referendum? Did you see any manifestations of that? I saw almost overwhelmingly students um, campaigning for this policy. There was also notably a very low number of students abstaining on this question compared to other referendum questions. So it does seem that many students came out to vote specifically for this policy. There's also just been a lot of protests, both of what's happening globally, but then also of McGill's reaction um, to the conflict and kind of the university's communications thus far. What was the issue students had with the university's communications? Um, A lot of students that I've spoken to have said they don't feel that the university is taking a strong enough stand for human rights or that they don't feel like Palestinian students are being supported enough on campus. I've also heard the same from many Jewish students. So in general, a lack of support. And then also a lot of students have called for McGill to divest from companies, for example, that arm the state of Israel or to cut partnerships with universities in Israel. Lily, is there a precedent for any of this? Has, have McGill students voted on a policy like this one at any time in the in the past? Yes. Back in March of 2022, another pro-Palestine policy, this one was called the Palestine Solidarity Policy, also passed a student society referendum, this time with 71.1% of non-abstaining voters supporting it. So again, a pretty high percentage. Um, McGill had the exact same reaction at the time. It actually invoked the same section of the memorandum of agreement between the Student Society and McGill, ultimately leading the Student Society to back down and drop the democratically elected policy. Is there a sense that students on both sides of this issue feel safe on the campus when, when, it's, when, when, they, when they choose to voice their opinions about this conflict? I mean, I'm not sure that I'm the right person to speak to this because obviously I'm not someone who has been on the front lines as an activist or as a student affected by this. But I will say that a lot of students have voiced feeling unsafe. I've heard a lot from students who have said that they've been harassed or doxxed and think that the university should be taking a stronger stand. Um, The university on its part has sent out resources, um, 
but has mostly communicated with students through email blasts, just reaffirming that they think discourse should be peaceful and respectful. Students who support this policy say that the university has been silent over the violence in Gaza. How has the university responded to other recent conflicts around the world? Something I've heard a lot of students talk about is what they see are as disparities between how the university has reacted to this conflict and how the university reacted to what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. So many students, especially Palestinian students, have said that they feel the university provided a lot more support for Ukrainian students and Russian students when that conflict first broke out and that they think that the university could be providing that sort of support to students now. So as you know, B'nai B'rith Canada has gotten involved. They're the ones who are challenging the policy in court on behalf of a McGill student. What's their argument? Yeah, so I can't speak to this much because we haven't published on it yet. But what I can say is that B'nai B'rith was outspoken and pursued legal action over the 2022 Palestine Solidarity Policy as well, I'm claiming that the policy was discriminatory and that both SMU and McGill have not done enough to protect Jewish students on campus. But now a Quebec court judge has put an injunction on the policy. What's been the response to the fact that there's now an injunction? A lot of students are seeing this as a violation of their democratic rights. Um, there's a lot of talk of the fact that this policy was democratically voted for by students. And I think that many people feel that there shouldn't be interference in that. Um, I know that in 2022, um, when the Palestine Solidarity Policy was struck down, there were a lot of protests on campus over that decision. There's a temporary ceasefire now in the war between Israel and Hamas, and the court will hear this injunction next year. Do you think the tension around this issue will ease down at McGill in the meantime? Do you expect that? I honestly couldn't say. I'm sure that students, especially Palestinian students, are going to still feel strongly. I think it depends how many people still come out to these protests, you know, how large mobilizations are, but I don't imagine that protest is going to end anytime soon. Lily Kaysen, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me today. Lily Kaysen is the managing editor of News and Student Life at the Tribune, a student publication at McGill. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. A new report is uncovering an alleged assassination attempt of a Sikh separatist on American soil. The Financial Times says U.S. authorities stopped the plan to assassinate a Canadian and American Sikh activist on U.S. soil and that they believe the Indian government was involved. Two months ago, the Canadian government said there are credible allegations the Indian government was involved in the killing of Canadian Sikh activist Hardeep Singh Nijjar. According to the Financial Times, the U.S. Department of Justice is debating whether to unseal an indictment and make the latest allegations public or wait until Canada finishes its investigation into Nijjar's killing. And... On Tuesday, Quebec will hold a national tribute ceremony for popular singer Carl Tremblay. Tremblay died from prostate cancer on November 15th. He was the lead singer of the group Les Cowboys Fringants, who are dearly loved in Quebec and have a strong international following. A limited number of tickets for the ceremony went on sale Thursday and sold out in less than half an hour. After reports of tickets being resold for hundreds of dollars, Tremblay's partner, Marie-Annick Lepin, went on social media to say that out of respect for Carl, she'd like no one to buy them. 
She added the tribute ceremony will also be broadcast on various social networks. Still to come on Day 6, KISS wraps up their final tour. We go behind the scenes with their chief costume maker and codpiece washer. It's leather, it's shiny, it's spikes, it's studs. One, two, three, uh! Okay, if you've been to a wedding or chaperoned a high school dance in the past, say, 15 years, you have definitely heard this song. Oh yeah, that's Hey Ya by Outkast, but you knew that already. It's infectious, iconic, and it was written and produced by the one and only Andre 3000. In his post-Outkast years, Andre 3000 continued to make a mark in popular music. He made an appearance on Frank Ocean's massive 2012 album, Channel Orange. Since you've been gone, I've been having withdrawals. You were such a habit to call. I ain't myself at all, had to tell myself no. She better with some fella with a regular job. But Andre 3000 has never released a solo record. Until now. Andre 3000's solo debut, New Blue Sun, dropped last week, and it is not in any way what people expected. For one thing, there's a lot more flute. That's the opening track from New Blue Sun. The title is, quote, I swear I really wanted to make a rap album, but this is literally the way the wind blew me this time, unquote. This is not just an opening motif. New Blue Sun is a purely instrumental record, and fair to say it's a pretty big departure from Andre 3000's previous work. But music journalist and researcher Melissa Vincent is here for it, and she says it's actually not as much of a stretch for Andre 3000 as you might think. I think maybe from the outside, it might feel a little bit surprising. But if you think deeply about the career that he has built for himself as one half of Outkast over the last few decades, you can see a expression that has always left a lot of room for creative exploration. Throughout his previous work, He's always been careful and intentional about tucking in moments that feel like they're coming out of left field, but feel like they're contributing to a larger sonic environment. You know, I think back to his speech at the 1995 Source Awards when he really ushered in a new era of hip-hop music by announcing the South had something to say. Did the South got something to say? That's all I got to say. People also forget that right before he said that, he talked about listeners being closed-minded. I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? Them closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear it. He was really thinking about what was new and fresh and unexpected about the project and the music he was putting out at that time. 
in a lot of ways, this is his first debut record. And with that, we are seeing an artist explore and chart a new creative pathway for himself. In a lot of ways, collaboration has always been at the center of Andre 3000's work and is the beating heart of this particular project. There's the energy of players like Carlos Nino, there's the work of Surya Bodoficina, who all contribute individual pieces, their collaborators and colleagues, but also the flute. His instrument is a subject as much as he is, that they're working together. They are collaborators, they're colleagues, they're co-conspirators. By Andre 3000's admission, he has been playing the flute for a long time. It really makes me think about what his relationship to the flute at this stage of his life is able to unlock. That earlier in his career that might have felt like rapping was able to convey and communicate the themes that he was exploring. But now the flute is his main collaborator and co-conspirator. For listeners who are thinking about how they reconcile New Blue Sun with what they've known about Andre 3000 in the past as foundational to the history of hip-hop, can think about what hip-hop is able to do for those that create it. Hip-hop is always a sound, but hip-hop is always a feeling and a spirit of experimentation and liberation for those that create it. And for Andre 3000, it has given him the option to experiment freely and in a way that is unguarded. And we see still him tucking in moments of play and mischief that we grew to love on the early Outcast records. think about the album opener i swear i really wanted to make a quote-unquote rap album but this is literally the way the wind blew me this time or 93 till infinity and beyonce you know he was talking about because the project is instrumental that he felt that it would provide some wayfinding for the song titles to feel like they had a lot of information in it, a lot of ways for people to think about, where do I hear Beyonce in this? Because of how he's positioning certain themes, certain ideas, and ultimately that ability to think beyond the music in creative and dynamic ways, that really sits at the heart of what hip hop is as a genre that is always evolving. With the release of this solo record, Andre 3000 had free license to do whatever he wanted. And the fact that he created a galactic, new age, spacey jazz record of the highest magnitude feels like a project for listeners to, I think, really imagine themselves as participants, to think about what it means to listen to this music, to find themselves strapped into a journey, destination unknown and not fully understood, but still desirous to arrive at. 
Melissa Vincent is a music journalist and researcher in Toronto. Okay, well, this is Paul's vest. Hanging up here is Jean's codpiece. It's massive. Every year it gets bigger. Um, these are some arms for the armor. And I have a set of wings here that are drying right now. Wings, armor, action. That's Rebecca Severn. She's the wardrobe manager for KISS on their end of the road world tour. The wings for Jean. Everything leather that the band wears, I built. But um, other people do other things, like we have a person just for making the spandex, the person for the boots, because if one person is sick, it doesn't kill the whole production. KISS just wrapped a slew of shows in Canada, wowing the crowds as only KISS can. And Rebecca has been in the wings at every gig. My duty on this tour is to make sure the blacks are black and not gray. Everything's clean, all the stones are in place on the clothes, the mirrors don't steam up on Tommy's outfit, the silver is as shiny as it can be. The stakes are especially high on this tour because the band insists it's their last. They played their final Canadian gig in Toronto on Wednesday and they'll be donning Rebecca's hand-built leather armor for the very last time, one week from tonight, at Madison Square Garden. In the meantime, Rebecca Severn is here with us. Rebecca, welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Rebecca, for how many years have you been making Gene Simmons' codpiece? Since 2004. So almost 20 years, 19 years. Have his codpieces changed over time? Yes, they get longer. (laughs) (laughs) They were shorter when I started. Now they're almost like two feet. And you also make wings for Gene. What does he need wings for? To look cool. Well, he's the demon. Yeah. And he needs wings. So he flaps them. It's very dramatic on stage. They're a showstopper. He just lifts his arms up and he poses. It's all part of his act to um, just get in the character, to have the wings. The wings are my favorite part of the costume. Wow. And so how did you come to start working with Kiss and bring your craft to the way they look on stage? Well, so one of my friends had a friend who was working for Kiss. And I said, oh, I would kill for that job. That sounds awesome. It's leather. It's shiny. It's spikes. It's studs. It's like, and the next thing you know, next day I get a call. Hey, Rebecca, I broke my hand. Can you finish building the Kiss costumes? And this is when Gene wore head-to-toe leather. He had leather sleeves with silver leather spikes, leather harness, leather cod, everything leather. So I said, sure, I'll do it. So I took over the job. I went to meet Gene to fit him in the costume, and I had a T-shirt on that had the Hulk on it because I like comics. Comics, costumes, all of that is the same world that I like. Gene's also a huge comic book collector. I found out that day. He's like, who drew that? Jack Kirby. And he started quizzing me on comic books, and a fitting turned into a discussion about comic books and our favorite Silver Age artists for comics. Next thing you know, two weeks later, I get a call. 
we're doing a show in Chicago. Would you like to come and work in the makeup room and set up our costumes? And I was kind of hooked. I always wanted to go on the road with the band because it just seemed more glamorous than staying home and sewing. Well, it's it's all going to end in December. It's unbelievable that Kiss is going to sign off one night, uh, that second night in, in Madison Square Gardens. So what what has the energy been like at these Canadian shows over the past few weeks? It's been insane. It's probably the loudest audience I witnessed was in Quebec City. Right. People were screaming. The songs weren't even playing. You just hear like this massive, ah! Yeah. Even up in the nosebleed areas, I see people screaming and standing up and waving. It's high energy. Well, you have to make sure that they look like Kiss and that they look great in their costumes. How much of the show do you actually get to see? I see all of it. From the beginning of the show, I take Paul's vest when he throws off stage. I make sure it's hung. And then after that, I race to Gene's side of the stage and I work on his side. So if he needs something, if his costume hurts, if something breaks, I need to be present to run up the stairs and fix it in quick change. Usually everything fits and I just sit and I watch. And when they do deuce, I walk to the front of the stage so I can see them do their dance, you know, and they're all together moving the same time. And I like the... I like the pyro, so I make sure I'm out there the whole show just to watch it. There's a lot of leather, metal, and mirrors on these costumes. How much does a typical Kiss costume weigh? Jeans is about 30 pounds. Whoa. I think the boots weigh eight pounds a piece when I weighed them last. Um, Tommy's boots are very heavy. They're probably about 15 pounds total. Paul's boots are very heavy. I think the lightest costume is Eric the drummer. He wears a t-shirt and fancy pants, and that's just like streetwear. So these are, these are four very active older guys on stage. When they get off stage at the end of a night, how sweaty are the costumes that they give you? They are soggy and they steam. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do then? It's like melted bread, like wet bread. <laughs> I take them all. And I separate them. I spray them with rubbing alcohol, um, I mean vodka, with tea tree oil and put them in bags and wash them the next day. I'm washing the costumes right now as we speak. Then I hang them to dry and they have to be dry before the show. So you think these costumes are heading for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at the end of December? They better be. (laughs) I don't think. I just know they have to be or something's really wrong because they're like the first killer costume band. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. What's your official job title, Rebecca? Uh, wardrobe wench, glorified <laughs> scrub woman, get trashed cleaning lady. I'm in charge of the wardrobe. I take care of the costumes. Well, fans also get dressed up for these shows. Have you ever seen anyone in the audience who's really impressed you with their hair and makeup and costume? Yeah, I follow them and I take photographs. <laughs> Do you tell them that you're with the band? No. I just say, I like what you're wearing. Can I take a photo? Wow. And they're happy for that. Okay. I'm going to ask you some silly questions that KISS fans might really want to know, okay? Okay. Do you worry that with all the pyrotechnics, a band member's head will burst into flames? No, I worry about my own because sometimes I stand in the line of fire. And the pyro was set up to miss the band. These guys are like uh, geometry majors figuring out where it's going to go, where it's going to fall. But sometimes I'm in the wrong place and they have to pull me away and I see sparks flying. Oh my gosh. Does Gene Simmons' tongue need special makeup to be seen from the back of the stadium? 
he has secrets and I don't think I can share them. <laughs> What's your top advice for fans trying to do Kiss makeup? The band does their own makeup. I just say practice, 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 practice. Do band members ever just stay in costume and makeup overnight so there's less to do for the next show? No. Within five minutes, they take it off. They're in, in the food room eating food and they go back to their hotel. Or they sign guitars and then they, they stay in costume for that. So this is an historic tour. It's a massive farewell, and this is an iconic band. Yes. What has it been like to be part of all of that? Pretty awesome. I really like it because I like the music. I never get tired of watching them. I like the clothes, and they're very hardworking, so that inspires me. Like, even if they don't feel 100%, they'll give 200%. So I never have an excuse to say, oh, I got a sore throat. I don't feel good because... They feel the same way, and they, and they never stop playing. So I like that. Well, they're going to have their last show at Madison Square Gardens on December 2nd. They're going to stream it online. When it's over, do you think that these hardened veteran road warriors will be shedding tears? Are they going to cry? Yeah. I think so. I would. I'm sure the crew will be crying. We're all friends, so it's going to be hard to say goodbye. Rebecca Severin, it was really nice to meet you. Good luck for the, on your final days as, as wardrobe wench. Thank you. Rebecca Severin is the wardrobe manager for KISS on their End of the World Tour. If you want to catch the band's final show on December 2nd, you can pay to stream it live at ppb.com. Still to come on day six, making tea at Abbey Road. A new insight into the Beatles' right-hand man, Mal Evans. He was a jack-of-all-trades. He was a fixer. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. I mean, I knew you had on a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, you... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Ralphie, what would you like for Christmas? Horrified. I heard myself blurted out. I want an official Red Rider Cup in action to and show Wayne's Ball Air Rifle. Ooh. No. Shoot your eye out. The classic Mother BB Gun Block. Poor Ralphie. That, of course, is a clip from A Christmas Story, which was released 40 years ago this month. Ah, oh, no. Today, it's a holiday classic. It's about a boy and his dream of owning a Red Rider BB gun. There are so many iconic scenes. There's the leg lamp. It was a major award. Oh, look at that. When you look at that, listen, that glorious 
It's, 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 it's indescribably beautiful. It reminds me of the 4th of July. Well, if the 4th of July wore fishnets. And then there's Flick. Has anyone seen Flick? And the triple dog dare. Dad? So how many of you had your tongues stuck to poles just checking to see if that would really work? Galvanized aluminum was so tempting. Those are all classic scenes that are now part of Christmas pop culture lore. But back in 1983, no one would have predicted a Christmas story would become a holiday favorite. In fact, it almost didn't get made. It took years of effort and convincing, and even then, the studio only gave it a bare-bones budget. It was interesting to see A Christmas Story in theaters in 1983. I went with my parents to see it the first time, and it wasn't on opening weekend because I remember that people were already talking about it. It, Certainly among kids' set, I was 10, it was the subject of a lot of discussion. It was regarded as just extremely funny and something that you should see had great word of mouth quality to it that's troy brownfield he's the executive editor of the saturday evening post he wrote about the 40th anniversary of a christmas story and how this sleeper hit became an unlikely family classic first there's gene shepherd who narrates the film which is based on the stories he wrote about his childhood gene shepherd was a well-regarded radio humorist and he would start to tell these free-form stories. And a lot of the stories he told were personal experiences or reminiscences of his youth. And he attracted the interest of other people. And one of them was Shel Silverstein, the poet um, who was also a great friend of Hugh Hefner. <laughs> and you know, Playboy magazine would have these uh, stories and sketches by Silverstein. And he encouraged Shepard to write stuff down. And Shepard started getting published in these places like Playboy and other humor magazines, even as he continued to be a storyteller on the radio. And then over time, he had kind of a body of work that was family stories and family Christmas and holiday stories. Fun fact, Hugh Hefner apparently loved the movie and used to hold annual screenings of A Christmas Story at the Playboy Mansion. What a perv. And then there's the film's director and co-writer, Bob Clark. In the 70s and 80s, he made some of Canada's most successful films, including Black Christmas and Porky's. So he wasn't exactly known for making wholesome family flicks. Bob Clark is a really interesting figure to me personally. I've always been interested in these kind of multi-genre filmmakers. And Clark has this great distinction of making two absolute Christmas classics that are polar opposites. He made the kind of monumental slasher film Black Christmas in 1974, and he made A Christmas Story in 1983. And so it's interesting that you have one creative mind that can kind of hold these two (laughs) things in opposition and do them both. But um, Clark, he he did a lot of work in Canada and uh, won Genie Awards, but He said that when he first heard Flick's Tongue on the radio, he knew instantly that he wanted to make that. And in fact, he made Black Christmas and then he made Porky's and its sequel. And he turned down making the third Porky's movie so that he could make a Christmas story when that opportunity came up because he really just wanted to work with Gene Shepard and get that made. And um, it's just really interesting to see an artist like Clark who was able to connect with such wildly different genres and do them all well. You know, I don't know if you say uh, 
Renaissance man for it, but he definitely um, had an eye for understanding vastly different situations. <laughs> so you have the director of Porky's, a teen sex comedy, who's also known for his slasher picks, paired with the writer whose Christmas stories were originally published in Playboy, and together they developed a classic PG-rated family Christmas movie. But it wasn't an instant hit. Its popularity grew over time, and it took years. Remember, this was the 1980s. VCRs were just starting to become popular. On-demand viewing was years away from being a thing. So when the movie made it to cable TV, it changed everything. I don't think that you can really separate how we view a Christmas story today without the impact that TV had. You know, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, as you had the, the propagation of channels uh, in the U.S., U.S. cable, there started to be kind of a phenomenon of certain movies on all the time. Well, TBS was also responsible for showing a Christmas story frequently, and they noticed that no matter when they ran it, the ratings spiked. And so they tried the 24-hour Christmas story marathon one year, and the ratings were kind of stunning. <laughs> and... Um, the, the ratings were just always huge and it, I think that it's it's got that kind of effect of a perennial classic sort of like um, it's Christmas Charlie Brown or whatnot where people can go back to it they revisit it it's familiar it's fun it's something that you introduce to younger members of the family and with that constant TV presence you can count on it and I think that that constancy has allowed it to become a staple, not that it wasn't, but it, that reassuring quality that it's always there has really just kind of helped it over the time. Troy Brownfield is executive editor of the Saturday Evening Post. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. That's Maxwell Silver Hammer by the Beatles, and the guy tapping the anvil with the hammer in that song is Mal Evans, who, as it turns out, was an inseparable part of the Beatles. As the story goes, a young Mal Evans became attached to the Beatles shortly after he saw them playing at Liverpool's famed Cavern Club in the early 1960s. He went on to fill multiple roles, supporting the Beatles on the road and in the studio. He was a bouncer, road manager, personal assistant, caregiver, and friend. He even managed to find his way into some Beatles music. In 1976, a few years after the Beatles broke up, Mal Evans was shot and killed by police in Los Angeles. He was 40 years old, and he left behind a sprawling archive of Beatles-related material, including the diary he kept through those years with the Fab Four. Kenneth Womack is a professor, writer, and music historian. He spent three years digging through that archive and has now published a biography called Living the Beatles Legend, The Untold Story of Mal Evans. Kenneth, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Anyone who's watched Peter Jackson's documentary series, Get Back, will have seen Mal Evans because he's pretty hard to miss. He's a hulking figure, and he was in that documentary a lot. Was he just a really good photo bomber, or was there more to him than that? 
<laughs> well, there was a lot more to him than that. Um, he is a great photo bomber, though. <laughs> I mean, he is uh, notoriously uh, adept at that. But um, Mal was uh, really one of the key cogs in, in the Beatles uh, story. You know, Mal was essential and he'd help out with lyrics. He'd make a meal, you know, <laughs> you, know you name it. He was a jack of all trades. He was a fixer. Yeah. You know, when they'd have issues, Mal would get out in front of them and, uh, you know, plow them out of the way. He was, uh, you know, the guy who would make so many of these, these great, great recordings possible because they could stay up all night and work on a new song because they had Mal there to go get a meal or to, to repair an instrument or what have you. And he really started out as a fan. I mean, he, he discovered them playing at the cavern and got hooked. So he, he, he loved the music and the music was important to him. But how did Mal impact the band? How did he affect their work? You know, what I, I tell my students is nobody does it alone right? Yeah. We look at Charlotte Bronte and we think, oh, those great novels, staying up late at night, a solitary genius by candlelight, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just not like that. <laughs> right. You know, everybody who uh, achieves anything in life and certainly in art, which is a social production, they do so because they've got a great team and the Beatles had an exceptional team, right? Mm -hmm. uh, folks like Mal, as I said, who enabled them to do their work uh, more fluidly, to always be prepared. Um, you know, he was their secret weapon. His, um, his late sister said to me a few months ago that he mothered them, which I think is true. Yeah. He was the guy who was there. He had a bag. He called it his doctor's bag. And it had everything under the sun, some sundry items that maybe we don't want to talk about on the air. But, you know. Oh, you can talk about them. Okay. He had a lot of weed for them, yeah. you know, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mal was... Was, he was the jack of all trades. You know, if it broke down at 4 a.m., he had the Rolodex to wake up the guy at Sound City and say, I need you to, to go get a guitar for the Beatles. Yeah, I know it's 4 a.m., <laughs> right? Right, but but that meant that he was up at 4 a.m. and he was often working other jobs when he started out being their mother and their fixer and, and their bouncer. So how did the Beatles see him? How did they treat him when he was doing all of this work for them? Well, you know, as, as Neil once said, uh, he and Mal were called every name in the book by the Beatles huh. because the flip side of being the only two guys in their world, they were the only two employees of Beatles and company. Yeah. The flip side of that is you're all they've got. <laughs> and so, you know, they had to be prepared to take any and all abuse, um, which could come in a fusillade depending on what was happening. The Beatles and their very small team went through a lot of calamitous situations, uh, particularly on the road, um, you know, and, and all along the way, Mal and Neil were inventing their jobs. There were no jobs like this right, right. Uh, prior to those days, right? I mean, you know, people weren't thinking in 1963, I'd really like to be a roadie someday. <laughs> you know, what are the qualifications? Where do I apply? It just wasn't like that. I mean, of course, the Beatles were having jobs that weren't like that. Yeah. You know? But as we learn more about Mal, we see that although he was incredibly affable, somebody who got along with everyone, he also had his own ambitions. Being in the presence of such enormous creativity inspired him as well. And he, he wanted to write songs and he did write songs and he did write lyrics, but did he feel that he was given full credit for the contributions that he made to the Beatles? 
You know, when it came to the Beatles, Mal would never want the credit. Mm. You know, his job was to serve them. And as good as they looked, he knew he was doing his job. He he was a guy who was way ahead in terms of the notion of making your client look good, right? Yeah. He wanted them to look great. He felt like they were the, and he's right, are the finest fusion of music in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And he supported that. Um, he did want to try other things. And Mal had that kind of classic problem that I think lots of folks, you know, can identify with, which is they wanted him to take on other roles, perhaps uh, a managerial position with Apple, for example. But of course, as soon as he would start to be working in some other sphere of their business, they would think, wait a minute, we're working on the White Album now. We need Mal here 18 hours a day in the studio. What's going Mm -hmm. on? Mm -hmm. So, Part of his issue then is he became typecast or pigeonholed. Yeah. Let's let's talk about this archive because these materials came to you through Mel's family. You connected with them. Mel left these behind. For a long time, they were missing. But then you and his son, Gary, have worked closely in putting together the story. Gary wrote the foreword for your book, but they kept this trove of materials private and then decided to share it. What did you think? When you saw it, what did you think when you dipped into it? Well, uh, first of all, when Gary called me, it was right around the beginning of COVID to do this project. I was going to do it just because I love Gary. Right. (laughs) You know, so I knew uh, I'll write something up. I I don't know that there's a lot of material. Like everybody else, I was curious about Mal and and what happened uh, in his life and times. But one of the first things I said was, do you really have all this stuff? And he said, yeah, you want to see it. (laughs) And he mailed it to New Jersey. Um, and, uh, it just blows you away. Uh, you know, suddenly you're seeing thousands of photographs you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. You're seeing Mal's notebooks, which he has hundreds and hundreds of pages of. He kept journals and diaries. He wrote drawings, yeah, drawings, three manuscripts. I mean, it's just an enormous cache of material. And what it effectively did was it gave me Mal's voice and his perspective, you know, which you often lack you know, getting to the heart of what that voice and that that mind was thinking is pretty difficult. Well, suddenly I had very clear idea from beginning to end where Mal stood on things. Mal knew that he wasn't the best dad or husband because he was so dedicated to first the Beatles and then the life that he glimpsed for himself as a result of that. And in one of the poems, which is in this archive, Mal writes, have I destroyed my happiness cutting down my family tree? So Mal's family paid a price. How does Gary deal with that? It can be gut-wrenching for him even today. You know, um, he's been going to my classes the last couple of weeks. He just flew back to England after our little mini book tour we did. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's gutted by it. You know, he grew up with these guys. The Beatles were his dad's best mates. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, he adores his father. They had wonderful times together. But then on the other, and he's had to reckon with this for near on four or five decades, Mm -hmm. his dad was, as you said, uh, an absentee father. I mean, when it came to Beatles versus uh, family, Beatles won every single time, you know, without fail. So Gary has difficulty with that, you know, and a lot of pent up feelings. He was in class the other night and, um, thinking about John Lennon. And we, uh, we were at the point in the semester where across the universe first comes to light and Gary had to leave the room. Yeah. I mean, he was choked up thinking about John Lennon and the time he spent with John as a kid and his father, because, you know, um, you know, those were the best moments for him, things like that. So it's, it's tough for him and Julie too. They both still have a lot of pent up emotion, but from the beginning, they said, we want a warts and all story. We can't pretend 
that our father was this, you know, he, he wasn't Ward Cleaver, right? right? Or any of these TV dads. Yeah. He was uh, a man who was ruled by, at times, his own appetites and failings. Hmm. People pay attention to the story of John Lennon's lost weekend in Los Angeles. And it seems like the Los Angeles part of Mal's life is similar. He died in Los Angeles in 1976 at the age of 40. He was shot dead by police. Can you tell us briefly what happened? For, for decades, people have believed that, you know, it was a mistake, that the cops gunned him down, that they went to the wrong house, etc. It really was nothing of the sort. It was uh, Mal was committing suicide by cop before we had the phrase for such a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he was creating a scenario that he would not survive. And it had nothing to do with the Beatles. It had uh, everything to do with the fact that his wife said, I'm going to go see a lawyer. She didn't say, I'm going to divorce you. She said, I'm going to go meet an attorney. Mm -hmm. She'd never done that before in all these years. Now, here he is living in another country and had been for two years with another woman. It's a perfectly reasonable <laughs> thing for his wife to do, right? Right. Um, for Mal, it represented the collision of all of these carefully tended compartments over the years, right? His professional compartment, uh, his California compartment, family compartment. Yeah, I'm convinced that it was that collision that he had seen coming for a while, in fact, that caused him to kick into action in that way. There's no question that it, it also was probably hampered by cocaine and, you know, other aspects of Southern California rock at the time, right? Mm. Um, but Mal was, you know, believed he would never see his kids again. Um, so, you know, needless to say, when he was able to get the cops to come out to the duplex, his plan was completely in action. And there was little, very little anybody could do because he was upstairs alone with a working rifle. And when he raised it toward the cops who had told him to put it down, they do what cops do. Kenneth, you, you said that he died at the wrong time. What do you, what do you mean by that? What, what do you imagine Mal Evans would have done had he lived? Oh, yeah. I, I say this to Gary and Julie all the time. If he had just hung on, right? You know, uh, the Apple partnership had ended uh, by John's signature in December 1974. In 1975, it was ratified by the high court. Um, you know, he hangs on a little longer. He's there with Neil rebuilding Apple in the image that the Beatles need at that time, right? Mm -hmm. So many marvelous opportunities could have come his way. He would have been there to enjoy what has been uh, just a ceaseless Beatles onslaught. The CD releases in 87, the anthology, the Beatles one, the remasters, the remixes, and and heck, last week, number one in their right, home country. Right, with Now and, with now and Then. <laughs> you know, I and, mean, and I noticed when, when Now and Then came out that the name given to the AI tech used to improve the old demo recording of John Lennon's voice was Mal for machine-assisted learning. Do you think that was just a coincidence that it's named Mal? Oh, no, not at all. Um, in fact, Peter Jackson had said that, you know, they were thinking, you know, the, who was the greatest assistant to the Beatles? It's Mal. And of course, the greatest assistant for them and their work uh, disaggregating all of those sounds was Mal, machine-assisted learning Mal. <laughs> Kenneth Womack, what a life. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you so much and uh, much appreciated. Kenneth Womack is a professor of English and popular music at Monmouth University. His new book is Living the Beatles Legend, The Untold Story of Mal Evans. I know it's true. It's all because of you. And if 
time, weather, and... Rift from the headlines. And here it is, Riff from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Check it. Sucker MCs could never swing with D. Because of all the things that I bring with me. Only G.O.D. could be a king to me. And if the G.O.D. be in me, then a king I be. Bitcoin that you toss for heads or tails. Bitcoin you let slip down the drain Bitcoin didn't find where it landed Bitcoin, Bitcoin Charles in charge of our days and our nights Charles in charge of our walls and our Reliant K with the theme from Charles in Charge Bitcoin by the Beautiful South and Run DMC with Down With The King and Alicia Struck of Plattsville, Ontario guessed the headline that we're looking for. Royal Canadian Mint unveils first coins with King Charles's image on them. Congratulations, Alicia. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put Rift in the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. And the prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear those clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Rift from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfuta-Dessa. Our digital producer is Paul Hentiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's five days to the opening of the UN Climate Change Conference, six days to International AIDS Day, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. It's been insane. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.